0: Ready for my extremely well-thought-out intro?
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Hello, and welcome to Sneezing for the Trees, a podcast about my sinus problems. Is that (laughs) it? I'm allergic to cats, and I'm not on my antihistamine for a week. I hate it. Anyway, this is actually uh, Speaking for the Trees, a a (laughs) podcast about... (laughs) Why are you laughing? Was it delayed laugh at my (laughs) extremely good joke?
1: Okay, so... (laughs) I don't know if this is actually how you recorded it or not, but all I heard was "Welcome to Sneezing for the Trees," and then it was just silent for twenty or <laughs> seconds. <laughs> Discord cut out. I'm wondering why you didn't respond.
0: I'm keeping it. None of this is getting deleted. That's funny.
1: You're gonna have like a whole bunch of audio of me being like i think because i sat there for a few seconds and then i said is that it and then you just didn't say anything
0: <laughs> Hi, welcome to speaking for or sneezing for the trees silence for 20 <laughs> seconds no what i said was hi welcome to sneezing for the trees a podcast about my ongoing sinus problems and then i said something about being on antihistam- not being on antihistamines for a week and i'm dying
1: uh <laughs> extre- the delivery was extremely good on my end <laughs>
0: hi welcome to sneezing for the trees the end
1: <laughs> okay yeah anyway. except it except it went on for like a couple seconds longer than that And i was like was i supposed to say something here i usually good don't good intro guys okay oh man good intro
0: gang Anyway, Uh, this is actually Speaking for the Trees. It's a podcast about the environment. I'm Ellie. That's Lauren. Hello. Lauren is going to pick up where we left off last week and tell us about another wetland. We're going through our favorite wetlands. Mine was mangrove swamps and hers is vernal pools. And she's going to tell us all about that.
1: Lauren, take it away. All right. I forgot I started out my section like this, but I said it starts with, all right, mom says it's my turn to pick the wetland. Love that for you. (laughs) Okay. Anyway, so last week we talked about mangroves, and this time we're going to talk about vernal pools. So to start, what even is a vernal pool? So the main signifying feature of vernal pools is that they are seasonal. Generally, they are deepest in the spring, hence vernal in the name. Uh, They also go by the name ephemeral pools. Um, the environs of vernal pools can be pretty much anything from forests to grasslands or even rocky areas or any variety thereof. I like ephemeral pools because it makes it sound like fairies live there. I know. Well, I think that <laughs> I think that all of the names kind of sound very fae to me. Um, yeah. The names of the species that live there and just in general. I like them a lot. Um, and also like if you... Uh, <laughs> This is an audio format, so I can't show you pictures, but if you look up pictures of vernal pools, they do kind of look like fairies might live there. Um, yeah. So they are characteristic of Mediterranean climates, but they show up in a lot of other ecosystems as well.
0: And a Mediterranean climate is just anything that's like the Mediterranean, not just the Mediterranean.
1: Yeah, it's not. Yeah, it's not like specific <laughs> to that region in Europe. Like they, they have a lot of vernal pools like out in California, Mm-hmm. And a lot of other places, like I said, they can show up anywhere, but pretty much any forest that
0: has any sort of water coming through it.
1: Yeah, well, yeah, so it can be I anywhere, mean, really. Yeah, it's, but that's the thing is, like, it has to be somewhere that it's like seasonally you have changes. Um, mm-hmm. So the way that vernal pools form is uh, an annual cycle of precipitation. So. Basically, there are three phases to a vernal pool. Um, The pool will first be filled by rain and other precipitation in the winter, and that's called the inundated phase. And then it slowly dries out in the spring, and that's called the flowering phase. And then it will dry up completely Mm -hmm. in the summer-ish, and that's the dry phase. So, as a okay. result, the pools are generally dry for part of the year to be filled by rain and snowmelt and a rising groundwater table. They don't always have to fully dry up every year, but they must dry up periodically to be considered a vernal pool.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, Otherwise, it's just a pond
1: or a puddle. Yeah. Y- yes. <laughs> yes, or it's just like a standing wetland, right?
0: I mean, not I mean, isn't a if you think about it, a vernal pool is kind of a glorified puddle.
1: Yeah. That's that's not that's not completely inaccurate to say, yeah. <laughs> so, it's just a puddle that happens to be pretty
0: and have stuff in it.
1: Yeah. They are differ- they're differentiated from other seasonal wetlands in that at least most, if not all of the incoming flow is precipitation based. So rain or snow. Yeah. I don't want to get too far into the weeds on this, but the source of incoming flow of water to wetlands is a pretty major part of how they get categorized. So a vernal pool, uh, it, it has to be fed by the precipitation. Like if it's being fed by, if you say have like a pond that floods and then you have like a stream that feeds into the wetland that that's different. That's just a seasonal wetland. It's not specifically a vernal pool. Right. In my understanding. So Um,
0: basically you got a depression in the ground. It it, every year fills with snow and, or rain and then becomes a wetland briefly and then dries up
1: that's a vernal pool if yeah. it's
0: something else that it's not called that damn it
1: yeah <laughs> um and if you're wondering how these pools hold on to the water that they're inundated with for so long which is anywhere from 10 to 65 days according to wikipedia is how long they hold on to the water
0: oh a 10 day vernal pool what a baby
1: <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's because they have a pretty it's it's called like a low permeability layer, which basically mm, means like yeah. it doesn't let water pass through very easily. so a lot of times they'll be under like there will be underlying clay um, yeah. and it keeps the water from draining quickly.
0: Yeah, the vernal any kind of sitting water body often f- basically makes its own we call it a clay plug in geology where the s- sediment that's in the water will fall to the bottom and like add to the bottom. Uh, sediment, and it'll mm-hmm. slowly make a very difficult. To, it'll make it difficult for water to go down into the ground, basically. So that's what keeps it pooled there for a long period of time.
1: Oh, that's cool. See, I didn't. I didn't major in geology, so I didn't learn a lot of specifics about this. But that's cool. I get to learn. Yeah, that's too. how. That's most. Uh, oh God, I was
0: about to use a really <laughs> big word. I was going to say lacustrine <laughs> environments. No, most <laughs> ponded areas that stay ponded have something called a clay plug under them. They'll, they're, at the very least, they'll have silt there that is hard for the water to go down into.
1: Yeah. I realized that there was silt because a lot of the times the silt is where organisms live, but I didn't realize uh, that... There's a whole mechanic for it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Anyway, this all results in some pretty drastic seasonal changes in the water level that only specific species have adapted to. These pools exist long enough that upland plant species can't take hold, but they don't exist for so long that aquatic plant species can take over.
0: Okay, so very, very uh, well ephemeral, like you said, yeah. very liminal. Yeah, yeah, they're temporary.
1: They're, yeah, they're temporary wetlands, but they're really interesting. They're, I think
0: <laughs> that really adds to like the fae aspect of it, right? Because like I know
1: that's what I like think, the too.
0: folklore would, because like these in folklore, fae are very like. They only exist in our world for brief periods of time when you can interact with them and yeah. same with these wetlands. It's just it's 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 such a cute little marriage of folklore and uh geology? Limnology? I don't know.
1: Yeah. Geomorphology. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not I'm not, I don't know. But <laughs> I, also just a note, um limno- <laughs> I I got like caught up in this, but like limnal is completely different than like limnology, which is yes. lakes. <laughs> That's the study of lakes. <laughs> it's not like the study of limnal spaces. Temporary or spaces. Something. Um
0: Yeah, I got my major in uh temporary spaces. <laughs> Get out of this Best Buy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so uh, get, to get into the flora of vernal pools, which I think will be Ellie's favorite section, but also the section yeah. that I personally know the, have the least context for. <laughs> um, plants, plants, plants. So you know how a lot of areas will have flowers that bloom at different times during the spring and summer? Mm-hmm. Because vernal pools are so exfe- affected by the season, a lot of the flowering in them occurs like simultaneously, which means that they are yeah. stupid pretty, but only for a short while fay areas. And the species that the species that grow there tend to be pretty distinct too. They f- favor annual plants um which mm-hmm. is like about 80% of the flora that is there is stuff that dies every year to come back the next year. And so it has so, to self-seed. Yeah. Some perennials have adapted to suffer through quote extensive mortality which is what Wikipedia called it, and I really liked. That's very Um, dramatic. I love that. Yeah, and as a result, even the perennials that live there are pretty much annual growths as well. That makes sense. Yeah. Typically, a pool will only have 15 to 25 species. That's from Wikipedia, Um, again. Um, I don't know what it is about vernal pools, but the names we have given to the plant species that favor them are top tier. Yeah, they're S-tier for sure, for sure, for sure. I am going to read a list to you guys of some vernal pool specialists that are found in California vernal pool habitats. Um, yes. These are, these are all plants. <laughs> so, sticky seeds, calico flowers, button parsleys, snorkelwort, false Venus looking glass, pincushing plants, popcorn flowers, woolly heads, calusa grass, or cut grass, solano grass... <laughs> I smiled that whole time. That was delightful. And I also pulled out a few choice names from the list of plants that are found in vernal pools, but they also are found more universally, so they can be found in other types of environments also. Quill warts, water clover, mousetail, buttercups, spike rushes. I really like mousetail. I know. <laughs> I know all the names are really, they're just top tier. Like, the scientists really just, like, hit after hit after hit, bangers on bangers. (laughs) Oops, all bangers. (laughs) Animals live there, too. (laughs) This section is called (laughs) Animals Live There, Too, right? Tell me about the animals, please. (laughs) (laughs) No, I want the plants to keep going. Please list more names. That's good content. (laughs) (laughs) It's just, like, me saying, like, silly Doctor Who's names. (laughs) Wait, what did I say? I think you meant to say Seuss, and you said (laughs) (laughs) Hoos.
0: Dr. Seuss names.
1: I mixed up Dr. Who and Dr. Seuss for a second. Fan art time. (laughs) Dr. Seuss names. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that, like, fully derailed my train of thought.
0: Okay. Plants so, animals. Animal time.
1: Yes. So what animals can even live in an area that it's only sometimes flooded? I know. <laughs> okay. Salamanders and frogs. Yeah, yeah. Oh my god. I love salamanders and frogs. Amphibians are the best, anyway. So generally vernal pools they can't support fish, with the exception of a few species that have adapted to have annual lifespans. And then I <laughs> oh, wild. I, yeah, I yeah I made a note that it's uh particular. There's like certain. There was a note of us that there's certain species of killifish um, <gasps> that have adapted. Animal Crossing. Yeah, I know. <laughs> That's what I thought too. <laughs> it's the only reason I was like, I was like, oh, I know that name. Uh, <laughs> Me
0: with any fish name. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: other than that, vernal pools are important for a lot of amphibians as breeding grounds. Uh, some New England indicator species of a vernal pool. Um, I live in New England. Yes, uh, and quickly, <laughs> just an indicator species is just a species that indicates that the environment is, in fact, that type of environment. Okay, so like
0: a it's like an index species or like a
1: it's a cornerstone. That uh, yeah, it doesn't necessarily mean it's not like. Uh, oh, It's not like indicative of like the health of it, but it's like if you aren't sure if an area is should technically be classified as a vernal pool, they will look for these species to be like, hey, this lives here. So vernal pool. It must be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Some of the New England indicator species are the wood frog, spadefoot toad and mole salamanders. Delightful. Yeah, so these species will live in the upland areas surrounding the pool and only return to the pool to breed and lay eggs. There's a couple of important invertebrates that inhabit vernal pools. Um, Like one of the big ones is fairy shrimp.
0: (gasps) That's such a cute name.
1: Yeah, and that's like another indicator uh, species that they use to declare something to be a vernal pool. Um, Also, Daphnia. And I say Daphnia as though everyone knows what those are. Uh, I another don't. name for <laughs> another name for them is water fleas. Uh, I used to work in a lab where we actually bred and uh, took care of populations of Daphnia to use in uh, some scientific stuff. It, it this doesn't matter at all, but I it used, matters to you. Yeah, I used to. I just used to work. They're with so Daphnia. small. Yeah, they're water fleas. They they literally look
0: like a flea, but in water and very small.
1: So the the reason that fairy shrimp, like, I'm going to be talking about them for a little bit, so sorry if you don't care, but the reason that they're (laughs) an indicator of vernal pools is that they pretty much only live in ephemeral waters. They're relatively large. They generally will be between 6 and 25 millimeters, although they're... Wikipedia did note that there is one species that grows up to 170 millimeters, which is huge. 10 centimeters. Yeah, but... That is big. That's like a foot. Yeah. They swim kind of slow. Uh, They have 11 pairs of swimming legs, and they swim upside down. And as a result, they're really easy targets for predators, so they tend to live in environments with fewer predators like vernal pools because as ah. we yeah as i mentioned before um only certain species have really adapted to live in vernal pools so they had they, there's just like less species to worry about in general that will consume all of the fairy shrimp makes sense yeah so they survive the dry phase of vernal pools uh, by going into a state of uh, cryptobiosis. So basically their metabolism stops all processes until the pool is inundated once again. Oh, like frogs during the winter. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So something cool about all of this is that is that if the vernal pool cycle is stable, these populations surviving in these ephemeral environments can be extremely old. Um, yeah. I have- and isolated too. Yeah, so like there's um on the Socotra archipelago, which is part of Yemen, there's a species of okay. fairy shrimp that is believed to have been isolated since the Miocene era. What? Which ended 5.3 million years ago. Yeah, oh my god, that's so interesting. And it's so cool cuz it's like it's because it's like these pools that have like this annual cycle, so all of these species most of them like they live and then they die and then they live again. That's um, <laughs> a shiny about, and chrome. <laughs> I've been thinking about Mad Max: Fury Road a lot. Um, <laughs> so yeah, but the species who like they're living in this environment that's like it's so because it the cycle is like that. It's like that annual cycle. It's so specific, but then like the population itself is managing to survive so well and just keep doing its thing for completely undisturbed it's
0: so cool that is really cool and it's also interesting it's like the island effect where you have like very specific species because they're completely isolated from other uh similar species so they can't like interbreed it's like a very specific thing in evolution and i just think it's so interesting that's why the hawaiian islands are really interesting to me yeah. But like, it, it's like an island effect, but it doesn't even need to be an island. It's just a,
1: it's just a little pool. It's just like this small pool. Oh my God. Anyway, I really, I really think they're so cool. Um. Th-
0: this, this episode brought to you by Small Pools, the band.
1: <laughs> okay. So uh, I- I'm done talking about fairy shrimp now. They are still very cool. um, And they are worth talking <laughs> Keep about Keep that more. in mind. But I will <laughs> stop. But I will stop. <laughs> okay, so, so the state of vernal pools today, uh, they're they're particularly vulnerable wetlands, uh, specifically because they are ephemeral. So at the time yeah. of this recording in the United States, these wetlands are not protected at a federal level.
0: Yeah, we have like really specific ways that we protect things. Yeah, yeah I
1: out of doing it. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to get. The world of U.S. wetland legislation is deeply frustrating to get into.
0: And also not that interesting to a person who is not deeply interested in wetlands.
1: Yes. Um, but basic- I'm, I'm going to provide a, a, a TLDR for you. So, yes. bas- so basically, the only federal legislation of wetlands comes from the 1972 Clean Water Act. It, and that makes it illegal to drain, fill in, or pollute, quote, Waters of the United States without a permit. And we've been arguing what is covered by that act ever since it was started. Yeah, it's very vague. Um, So uh, focusing on um, ephemeral streams and isolated wetlands prior to Obama, discharging to that type of environment was evaluated case by case by the EPA and the Army Corps of Engineers Um, under the Obama administration. The protection of the Clean Water Act was extended to ephemeral streams and isolated wetlands. And that's called the Clean Water Rule, or WOTUS, the Waters of the United States. In only providing that information to you in case you want to look up anything about it. Um,
0: <laughs> I'm trying to remember that line that has woes in it. <laughs> I'll be something something with my WOTUS.
1: You have no idea what you're talking about. I think it's a Drake lyric. I don't listen to Drake. <laughs> anyway, so the Trump administration rolled that rule back and implemented Ooh. the Yeah. And implemented the navigable waters protection rule, which states that for these ephemeral streams and isolated wetlands, landowners don't even need a permit for activities affecting them, including discharging to them or developing the land. So as a note, this was all against the recommendation of the EPA officials that Trump's EPA administration had appointed. Like, these are yep. not people who were left over from Obama's EPA era. Like, left over from Obama's EPA era. Holy shit. Anyway.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's bad.
1: Anyway. uh, So, like I said, deeply frustrating and hard to understand and not worth getting into, but... Basically, that's where they're at federally. Um, so a lot of states still have protections in place for these ephemeral wetlands, at least. Um, and those protections are deeply necessary. It's estimated that 90% or more of the vernal pool habitat in a lot of California has been completely lost.
0: That's such a big percent.
1: I don't uh-huh. like it. hmm uh-huh. Yes. Um. More recent studies have found that over 13% of the remaining vernal pool habitat in California's Central Valley has been lost from 1995 to 2005. And that's... That's a really quick... That's 10 years. uh Uh-huh. A percent a year. (laughs) A little over a percent a year. Jesus. Okay. Yeah. So one of the other problems for these isolated wetlands is that because of how they form, which is precipitation and snow melt... They're really, really sensitive to changes in the hydrology of the surrounding land, right. so that introduces problems uh, when there's a- when there's like nearby agriculture. So, like even if you aren't developing the land that the vernal pool is on, um, because it's basically formed by runoff from precipitation, um, anything in the surrounding land in that in that watershed is gonna go to the vernal pool and affect it. Um, yes. so when there's nearby agriculture adding pesticides and fertilizers like, the water that's will all- go
0: through there and then pick up all those pe- first f- pesticides and fertilizer i tried to say both at the same time it'll pick up all the chemicals and just deposit them in the pool basically
1: yeah so it all is part of the runoff flooding these pools and so So it's like you not only need to protect the area of the vernal pool, but you need to basically protect all of the area around it that feeds into into that pool. So it's. And no one wants to do that. Yeah, it's complicated. Um, So a lot of states have like in terms of like what we're actually like doing about that, a lot of states have put, like, heavy emphasis on identifying and reporting these seasonal wetlands in order to protect them, because, like, because they aren't always there, it can be kind of yeah. hard to, you know, even know that there will be an issue be- because it's only there in spring and sometimes it's only there for, I mean, we talked about that that cycle where it's like sometimes they're only flooded for 10, 10 days at minimum, like, it can be hard to keep track of all of them, so... A lot of states have programs, like, set up to identify and report them so that they can move into protecting them. Um, some states even have, like, certification programs that showed up when I was, like, looking all of this up. So, like, basically there's, like, heavy emphasis on even f- on finding them, I guess, in order to protect them. And I wasn't able to find as many descriptions, of uh, any restoration projects, as Ellie did for mangroves. Um, I did find a couple, though. Um, there was one effort in San Diego that involved the artificial construction of basins, and they managed to actually have populations of vernal pool plants, including endangered species that persisted for over a decade. And were, That's awesome. Yeah, and they were, like statistically speaking, indistinguishable from naturally formed pools. So, That's awesome. It's it, it's hard to say whether that it, it's it's hard to say whether that can continue into the future or how successful all efforts will be. But there are ways where basically what they had done for this study is they had created these basins and then they had seeded it with species. Um, yeah, basically
0: that, a garden. Yeah, that happens to flood. Yeah, so
1: in the middle of a forest. Yeah. <laughs> um. So now we're getting into like the personal stuff, which is like why I like them so much. So Yay! I So I really love how a lot of the plants and animals associated with them have fairy names. <laughs> That's valid. And then I have a list and it just says snorkelwort, blue-spotted salamander, literally something called fairy shrimp? That's fair as hell. <laughs> So additionally I really love frogs and salamanders, and these are particularly important environments for them. Amphibian's support squad rise up. Hell yeah. They're also, so squishy looking. I love them. <laughs> yeah, and they are ephemeral, but that doesn't make I, I like that even though that they are ephemeral, and but that doesn't make them unimportant. Like they're there's they're cyclical and half of the plants and uh, half of the plants and animals that live in them die annually but like the per- populations persist anyway and i think that that's so cool um yeah and finally my final point is just that they are very pretty and i'm in love with them <laughs> <laughs> it's valid they are pretty i went to one
0: uh an environmental science field trip in high school and it was my- it was like one of my favorite field trips that i've ever been on saw a bunch of salamanders
1: Because Ellie did a plant species from vernal pools, I'm doing an animal species from mangroves. I'm excited. Yeah. So um, the animal that I will be talking about today is called the fishing cat because it's my endangered species of the week. So I get to pick the cat. (laughs) (laughs) So, (laughs) Fishing uh, cat. (gasps) It's cute. I know! (laughs) Okay, so uh, it's a medium-sized wild cat. It has a head-to-body length of 22 to 31 inches, um, and the tail is uh, 7.9 to 11.8 inches. The female weight is 11 to 15 pounds, and the male weight is 19 to 35 pounds.
0: It looks like a tiny leopard.
1: Yes. Yeah, so in case you don't have the time to... Look at a picture right now. Uh, I will describe it to you. So they have deep yellowish gray fur with black lines and spots. Um, The background color of the fur, uh, it ranges from tawny to ashy gray. And the size of the stripes vary as well. Um, They have short, rounded ears set a bit lower on the head. And the back of the ears has a white spot. Yeah. Um, their fur is layered. They have like a short, dense layer as a water barrier and thermal insulation, and the longer hairs are actually they actually have the pattern of the of the cat.
0: They have kind of a squished face, a little bit.
1: Yeah, they're really cute. They're uh, very cute. They have some they have some webbing on their feet, which apparently bobcats have as well. But huh, because that was the note is it's like similar to a bobcat, and it's like oh well, okay. They are listed as vulnerable. Um, They live near wetlands, along rivers, streams, oxbow lakes, in swamps and mangroves, in South and Southeast Asia. And it's the state animal of West Bengal. Adorable. It does not prefer smaller, faster moving waters. It prefers more like standing water areas. And it's thought to be nocturnal. Uh, They hunt along the edges of the water they'll grab prey from the water and sometimes they'll even dive into the water to catch prey that's so cool yeah they mainly eat fish they also eat birds insects small rodents um, and they'll supplement with mollusks reptiles amphibians and sometimes like carrion of cattle
0: they are cats after all
1: yeah so much like domestic cats they mark territory with their cheek head chin and neck rubbing Um, yes and and spraying urine as well as sharpening their claws Uh. yeah so (laughs) uh they mate during january and february and kittens are seen in march and april and they're extremely cute and small yeah they have two to three kittens at a time and they weigh six ounces at birth and they're able to move around actively at one month Um, And they're able to take solid food and play in the water at two months. Wow. Yeah. They, They live about 10 years in captivity. So the destruction and pollution of wetlands, it's a really big threat to them, as well as overfishing of local fish populations. Makes sense. Yeah. Additionally, in some areas where mangroves have been converted to aquaculture ponds... Uh, there's a lot of targeted killing. Uh, so think like farmers. Oh, fuck look, off. Yeah. So it's, it's similar to like farmers with wolves and coyotes, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. I guess there was, there was one study of fishing cats in Thailand and 84% of all the cats tracked via radio collars were killed. That's like, so upsetting. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, like either by n- not necessarily all targeted killing but um
0: you came into their house and started eating their food. Of course they're going to be there. Like fuck off.
1: Yeah, it's uh, they they're really like they're kind they're pretty secretive. So a lot of I don't know if you noticed, but a lot of my phrasing was like they're thought to be <laughs> nocturnal yeah. and stuff, but like that's um they they're pretty secretive. So we don't know a ton about how they behave in the wild, but they do have them in, uh, in zoos and stuff. So a lot of our knowledge of them comes from how they behave in captivity.
0: I really enjoy this one picture I found where it's on the edge of a rock, like in in, uh, in some water, and its face is just so like, concentration and surprised. I'm sending it to you.
1: <laughs> it's like what? <laughs> <laughs> it's very cute. Yeah, they're. <laughs> Yeah, their tails are like kinda stubby compared to their body, but it's it's very cute. They're very chonkery.
0: Yeah.
1: They're very chonk. They're like they're like kinda uh what's the word I'm looking for? They're kinda like stocky. Scoopable?
0: Yeah. scoopable. Yeah. I wanna hug it. <laughs> it
1: would absolutely maul my face, but I wanna hug it. Okay. So uh let's talk about the conservation so it's it is it. It, it is a protect it is protected by national legislation over most of its range um hunting of them has been prohibited in bangladesh cambodia china india indonesia myanmar nepal pakistan sri lanka and thailand that's um, that's good yeah in in bhutan and vietnam the species is not protected outside of protected areas um get but, together yeah but like like I said just because something is protected doesn't mean that there isn't like targeted killing of them still. oh absolutely but they are protected um so it's a step forward yeah where habitat degradation is a big concern there's uh like NGOs are working to slow the development of that habitat um, what does while, NGO mean uh it's Oh, man. Hang on. <laughs> you don't know either. I I looked it up, but I don't remember. National. Government. National. Non-governmental organization. So it's a nonprofit organization. Gotcha. Um, gotcha. That gotcha. it's independent of a government. In the places where the concern is the habitat degradation, so... Uh, there's NGOs working to slow the development of the habitat while collaborating with local villagers by creating programs for alternative livelihoods that don't damage the habitats. Um, and there's also breeding programs for the, for them in captivity in both Europe and America, because like I said, they're part of like the zoo system in America and Europe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and my final bullet point about them is I want to kiss each and every one of them on the forehead, although they would not understand or like it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, I, it does make me happy that the NGOs are looking to like help the local populations work around the cats because a lot of the problem with conservation efforts is that like we don't work with local populations of people to, you know do anything else we just try we just like slap them on the wrist and go hey do this better and they're like well how and we're like i don't
1: know bye yeah yeah it's it's sort of like oh, well you can't develop this land and it's like well i need the land to you know have a livelihood and it's i so, would like to eat please yeah so <laughs> thinking of like alternative options that maybe don't use as much land or use it in different and in, in, or like leave it as untouched as as they can while yeah providing an, an alternative is uh, a, a far better way to go
0: very important more uh, more NGOs need to do that Yeah. everywhere all, all the time yeah
1: good app yeah. Lauren I learned a lot I'm glad I'm glad this worked out <laughs> I hope it wasn't too much of just me talking but I
0: also kind of enjoyed this format where only one of us did anything and then the other one's like oh huh I didn't know that uh huh I didn't know that <laughs> What's what's an outro? Uh hey, thanks for listening to this episode of Speaking for the Trees. We never post on Twitter and Instagram, but you can follow <laughs> our Twitter and Instagram, Trees Speaking. To be clear, <laughs> we do check them. Like if you message us, we will see it, but
1: <laughs> we're just not even posting on it.
0: I never have anything to say. I had like a couple active weeks in January where I bullied Exxon and then <laughs> I
1: and then I stopped because I was
0: depressing. Uh in general to be on twitter uh <laughs> i don't like twitter i'm sorry and then i don't have anything to add on uh instagram until my wrists are better and i can make little art for our episodes um yeah. but yeah so we have trees speaking for both of those and then we have but we also have our email at uh for the trees.pod at gmail.com our website speakingforthetrees.com, for easy to remember uh, the website will slowly be populated with more and more transcripts. I think we are now up to episode four on transcripts. Yeah. Uh, we are slow because we hate doing it. Uh, yeah.
1: it really sucks. And we don't have
0: enough money to pay someone to do it. So it'll get done eventually. Yeah. But yeah, that, that, those are our, uh, social media and ways to reach out to us. And please do feel free to reach out to us and be like, Hey, this is a great idea for an episode. You should do it. Or, Hey, I'm a scientist and you're both idiots. Let me tell you about
1: yeah i mean no one talks to us so like we will see it and we will talk about (laughs) it (laughs) or we can not talk about it if you don't want to be acknowledged whatever you're comfortable with or if you literally just want to hang out
0: on twitter and be like hey what's up we're friends now that's fine with me as well so yeah thanks for listening we really appreciate everyone who listens and uh i hope you have a great day yeah and remember to drink water and uh we both love you yes
1: That's the outro.
0: Wheezy, goddammit.
1: Thanks for hanging out with me, Ellie, and our best friend,
0: Earth. The best friend has little pools on it, and we should protect them. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. All right. I'm going to stop recording now. All right.